This morning we have the privilege of returning to God's Word in the book of Exodus, chapter 33 is where we will begin. Exodus, chapter 33. Here we're picking up just after chapter 32 where last time when we were in the book of Exodus together we read about the golden calf incident, this sin that the Israelites had committed after receiving this great privilege of being the only nation who was brought in to worship with the one true God and the only nation who had been given this good law and this new relationship with them responded with great sin against him and idolatry and breaking every commandment that he had ever given them. And in that chapter, we read of death and judgment, which every Israelite deserved. But by grace, some of them were still alive. God is, throughout Exodus, teaching about his name. He's teaching about who he is and what he does. He's teaching about his character and his will. Exodus is a book about God's name. It's the revelation of who God is. And in this book, he launches Israel as a nation who's to be involved in this international plan of making God's name known to the nations. But they violated that in the golden calf incident. Israel disobeyed and they deserved the death penalty. Even though Israel had entered into this new covenant relationship with God, when we see here the law serving its purpose, its purpose of magnifying sin, it's showing them how bad they really are. It's a teacher that's pointing out their sin, but also pointing them to their need for a God-man mediator. So we saw last time in Exodus that that's something that Moses came to understand, that what it's going to take for sinful man to be made right with holy God is a penal substitutionary atonement. That means somebody's going to have to pay the penalty. And it's going to have to be a substitute because sinful man can't make himself holy. He can't pay for himself. There needs to be an atonement that can make sinful man at one with God. And Moses wanted to be that mediator. He understood there has to be a mediator. Atonement has to be made. And he says, okay, everybody, I'm going to go try to do it. But what Moses finds out is he isn't the guy. But there is going to be a guy someday who's going to provide the atonement that's needed. So Moses got the how right, but not the who. Well, what is it that a mediator for the people of God is supposed to do? Well, a mediator's supposed to intercede for them. The mediator is supposed to intercede in order to deal with the, den, the death and sin problem. But also, the mediator has to deal with the righteousness problem. The people don't have righteousness, but the mediator, whoever he is, has to have that and give it to him as a gift. God has to righteously deal with the sin problem by justly executing the deserved death sentence, which you can see the tension here in that everybody deserved the death sentence, but not all of them are dead. So is God unjust or does he have a just way in which he's going to deal with those who remain? God also has to 
justify the ungodly who are still alive in order to carry out his redemption plan. But he has to make them right with him in a way that is righteous. He has to somehow, to borrow the terminology from Romans 3, he has to be just and the justifier. And so Moses appealed to God to uphold his holy name and to be just that, to be just and the justifier, to be who he is and to not change because he doesn't change. And what people have done in response to his plan can't change his plan. Everything has to go according to what God has ordained. The lineage of Abraham must continue because God made a promise to Abraham and he can't lie and he can't break promises. God has demonstrated that he will forgive. He'll forgive even after high-handed sin, even that to the level of everything that took place around this golden calf. As I've mentioned, not everybody dies after this golden calf incident. But not everybody who lives gets a relationship with God either. There are people who will escape the consequences of their sin, but never really come to know God in relationship. At this point, Israel displays that they don't deserve this relationship with God. And so what Moses does is he mediates for God to establish this relationship. And we'll see that as we begin here in chapter 33 together in verse 1. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, Go, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, To your seed I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are a stiff-necked people, lest I consume you on the way. Let's pray as we can continue in our study of God's word here. God, we thank you for the high privilege of being able to read and to hear from your word. We pray that it would be preached accurately, interpreted faithfully, that we would hear it, that we would grow in our love for you, that we would grow in our devotion and faithfulness to you. We pray that in this message you would increase in us a gratefulness for the privilege of of having a relationship with you, even when we don't deserve it. Amen. You see here that in these first three verses that God is making this urgent imperative with Moses to go, to, to move quickly, to not wait around, and telling him that he's going to supply everything that he needs to enter into the land. Primarily, there's an angel that's going to go before them. And he tells them to go and take this land, but he says, do it apart from me. He says, I'm going to give you the promise of land, but I'm not going to give you the blessing of myself because you've sinned against me. And sin separates. It always separates. But just because God has removed the consequences of sin and they haven't died yet, it doesn't necessitate that they actually have a right relationship with them at this moment. 
So listen to how the people respond, picking up in verse 4. It says, Then the people heard this sad word and went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. So Yahweh said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would consume you. So now put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. You can see here that the people recognize they don't deserve to have Yahweh with them in the land. They don't deserve this relationship with him, even if he lets them live. Now, continuing on in verse 7, the text reads, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought Yahweh would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it happened whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And it happened whenever Moses entered the tent that the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and Yahweh would speak with Moses. And all the people would see the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, and all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, and his attendant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now this is setting up for everything that's to come later in Scripture and you see how sin separates here in Moses pitching his tent and where he chose to put it, outside the camp. Now, this signals that God, in the future, his plan was to live inside of his people. They were to be the tabernacle. But the problem here is now he's dwelling outside of the camp. He's not with them. They're not He's not in them, and they're not in him either. So why is it that the people would stand there and gaze after Moses? Well, because they wondered, will God ever dwell with us? I mean, now that we've done this, and he, like, we know he promised a relationship, but we've really kind of messed this up, and we could understand why he would be out there and not over here with us. But you see, there is something in them that they wanted that. They wanted God to dwell with them. And so there's this tension in this moment in which you see God is at a distance because he's outside the camp, but there's also hope because Moses could speak face to face with God. So you're seeing it is possible. It's possible to have that kind of relationship with God. And so Moses begins to mediate a relationship with God. And we see this in verse 12. Then Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. So now I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. See also that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence shall go with you. 
and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Indeed, how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us that we, I, and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? You see here that Moses is praying for God to do what he knows he has promised to do. He recognizes it, it, it can't work like this, which is why the Lord was speaking this way to Moses to get him to conclude, wait, 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 this is not how it, it works, and to bring him to pray these things that he is here now. Moses knows that he himself can't do what God commanded, but he believes that God can send somebody who can do the job that's required. And you see, somehow Moses had favor in God's sight. And he wanted to know, well, how was it? How is it that I've found favor or grace in your sight? Which is tied to this idea of God's presence going with him and giving rest as he had promised. Well, why were these things moving forward in this way with God now saying he would be with his people and give rest? Well, it's because Moses interceded. Moses prayed. We see that God is going to have a relationship with Moses and the people. Uh, he's going to bring rest like he promised. He's going to bring his people back to Eden. He's going to finish the job. The tabernacle is going to move forward until it takes over everything. The dwelling place isn't going to just be outside of the camp. It's going to take over the camp and the whole world someday. Yahweh's comments led Moses to say this statement in verse 15. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. He says, you know, it doesn't matter if we get the land and you're not there. You're the treasure that we want. Moses is communicating that, you know, Lord, it's not, go it's not worth going without you. And so you see what we learn about God's kind of mediator here is that the mediator not only deals with the sin that separates, but also the blessing that dwells with the people. This deals with the curse of separation, but also the bringing of the blessing of reconciliation, because God's salvation isn't just saving people from something, but also saving them to something else. They were not just saved from Egypt to escape Egypt. They're saved from Egypt in order to go to God and to know him and to dwell with him. Now, as I've mentioned, God can relieve the consequences of your sin and he can let you live but not live with you. I think in grasping that reality, it leads us to realize that we should never take a relationship with God for granted. He doesn't owe it to any of us. It's possible for God to let you live apart from him and to not dwell in fellowship with him. And there's these two words that are used here and throughout scripture, far and near. I have to deal with somebody's relationship to God and they get picked up in the book of Ephesians in chapter two to continue to teach us the theology that was instructed through the tabernacle. 
If you'd join me and flip over to Ephesians 2.11, I'd like to read from there so you could see that. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. I want you to listen to those words far and near. Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you are at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might create the two into one new man making peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. And he came and preached the good news of peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary or tabernacle in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. You see, there's this element in which this word far refers to these Gentiles. They're at a distance from the, the worship system and privileges that the Israelites had. And the Israelites are referred to as being near but now the mystery of the church is being revealed here in that the Gentiles are now joined as one man with Israel into the priestly relationship of making God's presence and name known to the nations. So the Gentiles, you can see, even though they were far, they can be not just forgiven, but also reconciled to God. Even though they were at one time far from tabernacle worship, they were brought near by the only way that God has ever brought anybody near, which is through the blood of Christ. Again, a reminder to not take forgiveness and relationship with God for granted, especially as we read here, as most of us here Gentiles, it says, you were strangers. It says, but now you're fellow saints. And I said, well, why is that? Because of God's grace, because of God's promise to have a relationship with the people whom he has chosen. Back in Exodus 33, we had seen there that the, the Israelites 
they wanted that relationship with God. There was a recognition of their failure and a longing for wanting to know how these things would work out. Israel understood the covenant and that they had responded wrongly to it. But as we had read there in Ephesians 2.21, it says, y'all are growing into the tabernacle structure, a, a holy sanctuary in the Lord. And if you were far off from God, but brought near by the blood of Christ, that's the reason that we're to be filled with the Spirit. You remember that within the tabernacle? What, what filled the tabernacle? It was the Spirit of God. You think about exactly that sort of logic when you go from Ephesians ta- chapter 2 to Ephesians 5. It's like, well, why are you supposed to be being filled with the Spirit? Well, because of what y'all are. Y'all are the dwelling place of God. That's why you're to be being filled with the Spirit. No one is entitled to a relationship with God. The only way they can have that relationship is by grace. Nobody's able to earn it. Nobody can do anything that, that could earn such a magnificent privilege. The only way you could ever receive it is if God decided by grace alone, through faith alone, to give that relationship to you. But how will all of this relationship occur in Exodus chapter 33? Well, it's by God's presence. One thing to remember is you read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation is that the glory of God is the only thing that can change everything. And every time the glory of God shows up, it changes everything. I want to pick up in Exodus 33 and verse 17. Then Yahweh said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. How is it that this relationship would occur? Well, it's by God's presence, as he said to Moses. I will make all my goodness pass before you. He says that he would proclaim his name, or better, I think, he would call upon the name of Yahweh, which we'll see developed later in the text. So how does this relate to the revelation of God's name? Well, we're seeing here that there's only one name under heaven by which men must be saved. There's only one name that can forgive and reconcile sinful man to holy God. 
But the mediator and the one called upon both must share the same name. See, see, Moses and Yahweh are two different names. So whoever the mediator is going to be has to have the name Yahweh. That means Yahweh has to call upon Yahweh in order to mediate and reconcile this relationship. Spoiler alert, that's what Jesus was talking about when he said, I and the Father are one. So in the context here, we're reading about the tent of meeting, and you remember in front of that there was the pillar of cloud. You have this messenger of Yahweh or this angel of Yahweh, which I'm convinced is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Christ himself and how he was revealed at this time in history. And you have this angel, in which we've already read by this point in the Bible, that Yahweh's name is in him, and he's going to call upon Yahweh. He's going to call upon Yahweh's name, which is a good name. It's a gracious name. It's one of compassion. And so we see that there's one in the Godhead who intercedes. So what's happening in this text, you remember the problem was that Moses recognized there has to be a mediator. He had learned it's not him. So who is it going to be? Well, Moses is meeting the mediator here. Little mini mediator Moses is meeting the major mediator who is Yahweh himself. Yahweh calling upon Yahweh as the priest mediator that the people have always needed. Now, lest this sounds like a strange sort of concept to you, and have you fast forward to the cross of Christ where you hear Yahweh Jesus call on Yahweh Father when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he said also, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. God is showing us here in Exodus 33 that He's going to do whatever it takes to redeem his people, just as he has purposed, just as he has promised. He can do this, and he alone will do this. He's able to save to the uttermost, and he's going to display his grace to utterly sinful people. In verse 18, we read that famous statement of Moses' where he says, I pray you, show me your glory. He said, show me how, you, how you're going to be consistent with your character. Show me how you're going to work out this plan with Abraham. He says, confirm to me that you are who you say you are because this sounds way too good to be true. Moses wants to know that this kind of grace is God's name, that this kind of grace is God's glory. And this is all continuing on developing that statement all the way back in Exodus 3 when God said, I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. God is immutable in who he is and what he does. He can't change in his attributes or his will. And God in this text is finally going to explain the fullness of his name in this phrase, loving kindness and truth, or maybe more familiar to you, grace and truth. Moses, at this point in his life, he had lived to see Yahweh's power and wrath, but now he's going to see Yahweh's grace 
and compassion. Now the fullness of God's name is going to be made known. And if you understand this, you'll understand how the great privilege that was given Israel went to them responding in great sin and then God revealing himself as the God of greater grace. All of this helps you understand how the plan of God and having a relationship to God are ultimately secured in who he is. He is just and the justifier. But how can he justly punish sin and justify the ungodly without doing an injustice? When it comes to God being just and the just justifier, God can't not be this. I know it's confusing to hear double negatives like that, so I'll say it again. When it comes to God being just and the justifier, God can't not be this and do this. He has to be just. He can't be inconsistent with his character. He has to be the one who justifies the godly through some righteous means, and it can't be any different than that. He must be who he is and do what he has promised to do. Exodus chapter 34 is very much the climax of the book that is the revelation of God's name. That is the book of Exodus. And it's showing that God will be who he will be. But Israel can't understand God until they see their sin. You understand the, the golden calf incident had to happen. They needed to see who they really were so that they could see who God really was. They are sinners deserving of death. But how can God reverse this? How could they still be alive and how could they still have the possibility of a relationship with him? Well, it's based on who God is and what he's promised to do. And they wouldn't be able to understand God's grace apart from first knowing something about his wrath. Just as you see in the development of this particular book, the, the plagues needed to happen to display God's glory first and also the golden calf incident in this order before people could understand his grace and forgiveness being revealed here at this point in scripture. Let's pick up on chapter 34 and I'm going to read that whole chapter and we'll continue on from there. Exodus chapter 34. Now Yahweh said to Moses, carve out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. So be prepared by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. And no man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he carved out two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as Yahweh had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. Then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him. And he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, 
Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though they are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own inheritance. Then God said, Behold, I am going to cut a covenant before all your people. I will do wondrous deeds which have not been created in all the earth, nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of Yahweh, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to do with you. Be sure to keep what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Beware lest you cut a covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and shatter their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other God. For Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you cut a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invite you to eat of his sacrifice and you take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, which I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. The first offspring from every womb belongs to me. Even of all your male livestock, the first offspring from cattle and sheep, and you shall redeem with a lamb, the first offspring from a donkey. And if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest, you shall rest. And you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks, that is, the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year, all your males are to appear before the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel. For I will dispossess nations before you and enlarge your borders. And no man shall covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before Yahweh, your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. And the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover shall not be left over until morning. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your ground into the house of Yahweh your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then Yahweh said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have cut a covenant with you 
and with Israel. So he was there with Yahweh 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it happened when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. Then Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them everything that Yahweh had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. Then Moses finished speaking with them and put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out, and then he would come out and speak to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded. And the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would return the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. Here in the beginning of Exodus chapter 34, we have two new stone tablets that were to be given to these people. And you remember what happened with this is it wasn't like part of the law was on one tablet and the other part was on the other, but it's two full copies. He's giving them the original plus the receipt that shows this transaction has been made. And it was a transaction for a relationship. But the first tablets that Moses shattered was showing you guys shattered the relationship and you don't deserve it. But now they're getting two tablets that are exactly like the first ones. So you see, God is extending grace and forgiveness with them. He says, you wanted to cancel the transaction, but I'm going to give you the transaction and the relationship anyways. But knowing what you just did previous to this will remind you that it's by grace alone that you're receiving this renewed relationship. God wrote the exact words from the previous tablets. There is no change in them because there's no change in God. There can be no change in his character or his law. God's plan is for the exact same relationship, and so he gives them a perfect copy. He will bring them back to Eden, as he promised. He will reverse everything that had gone wrong. He will forgive. He will reconcile what was broken. He will restore what was lost. You might remember back in Exodus 19 and the giving of the first tablets that you read much about fire and threats of death and judgment. But now in the second giving of these stone tablets, there's a lot of echoes from the first giving, but there's also a glaring difference. You don't hear a lot about fire and death and judgment, but instead the focus is on life and forgiveness. And you see here how God himself preaches the gospel to his people. He first gives them the bad news and then gives them the good news. 
he starts with telling them, you deserve death and judgment, but I can give you life and forgiveness. What's happening here in Exodus 34, you could call it the the great do-over. It's starting the relationship afresh because God has a way that he can justly forgive and wipe your record clean and bring you into right relationship with him. Astonishingly, we read in verse 5 that Yahweh descends in this cloud that's right next to Moses. So you remember the question that had been raised with Moses is, well, you know, if I'm not the mediator, then who is and how does it work? Well, who it is is Yahweh. He descends in the cloud and he's right next to him. And he says, well, how does it work then? Well, it works like this, Yahweh, Yahweh God. It's Yahweh interceding to Yahweh And this is the angel of Yahweh, it says, who stood there, who was resolute, standing at attention, was holding the ground and doing the action of a priest. Moses is seeing right next to him the priest mediator, the only one who can actually stand in that position and perform it perfectly. But also, as you look there at verse 6, who is it that's calling on the name of Yahweh? Well, let's look back at verse 5, actually. It says, Then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him, and he called upon the name of Yahweh. So the question is, is it Moses or Yahweh himself? It's Yahweh calling upon Yahweh. And it says, And he passed by before him and called out. So you see there's a simultaneous proclamation of God's name while God is interceding to God on behalf of his people. And Moses heard this and he understood this is who the mediator is and this is how salvation works. Well, why is it that we read Yahweh, Yahweh God? Why is it said twice? Well, this is a reminder of what Yahweh means. If you translate it, it means I am. And he's saying here again, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I haven't changed, I can't change, and I won't change. Well, who is he? He says he is compassionate. So you remember we talked about God's name is his glory. It's about who he is and what he does. Well, who is he? He is compassionate. Well, what does he do since he's compassionate? He keeps loving kindness. That's what he does because of who he is. And he isn't compassionate just overall or most of the time, but all of these things that he is, he always is every time. And even this time in light of what Israel had even done in this situation. God is compassion. This Word is actually the word womb in Hebrew, W-O-M-B. And it communicates this idea of God being like a mother who cares for a child, who is empathetic, who is sympathetic. God reveals his name here as gracious. And where his, his compassion is his willingness for his child, 
His graciousness is the action which actually carries out that compassion. It's not just an affection in him, but his grace is an, an act that comes out of that compassion. And he reveals that he is slow to anger, which is translated from a Hebrew idiom, long of nose, which would be very confusing as an English reader to read that Yahweh is long of nose. But for people who deal with animals, they know that horses are different than bulls. Short-nosed animal gets angry fast. Long-nosed animal does not get angry so fast. That's the idea with this idiom. It takes a long time before God's anger ever comes out. He's slow to anger. And thanks to William Tyndale, we have this word loving kindness. Now this is a concept that has to deal with God's faithfulness, his loyalty, his love, his kindness, all of these. And it, most of the time in the New Testament gets translated as grace. Loving kindness has to deal with his omnipotent intervention for our good. It's not just that he says that he loves us, but he also does what is necessary to accomplish carrying out that love. As an example, I thought of Jesus and his disciples in the boat when the sea was raging. And God doesn't, he doesn't just get up and tell them, well, guys, you know that I love you. <laughs> he does more than that. He has the ability to tell the raging sea to be still and he does it for them. He is able to intervene for our good. That's what's caught up in this word loving kindness, God's ability to intervene for our good. He's able to carry out an absolute intervention to see through his promises in reality. We read also here that God's name is truth. God can't lie. There's nothing artificial about him. He is genuine and there's nothing ingenuine in him. He is pure and true through and through. He doesn't just look right, but he is right. And we talked about this in our discipleship training class this morning, but like a lemon car, you know, when you buy a lemon, like it looks nice, but that's all that it does. It just looks nice. It doesn't run nice. It doesn't work. Well, God isn't like that. He's not a lemon. He doesn't just look right. He is right. And you can trust him because he is true. And so we have these two words, loving kindness and truth paired together. And they get repeated over and over throughout the first testament from the prophets when they describe and teach God's word to others. God's all-powerful promises drive the storyline of scripture. His omnipotent promises forward his plan in history. They're not just things that he talks about or he's trying to do. They're things that he is doing and he's going to do and nobody can stop him from being the God who is grace and truth. And what his covenants do, what the biblical covenants do within scripture is they frame and forward history. And history has to happen within the covenant framework that God has laid out in scripture. And they're exactly how things must move forward. And they also function to mediate God's redemptive plan. And God's redemptive plan involves revealing that he is 
the one who is grace and truth, which is more familiar to our ears probably than loving kindness and truth. But when you think of grace and truth, you think, well, who is that? Who's described with those two words in the Newer Testament, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, in verse 17? John chapter 1, verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John is saying, Jesus is Yahweh. He's the Exodus 34 Yahweh who calls upon Yahweh. He's that. It says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, which again very much sounds like what happened here in Exodus 34. And then John 1.18 ends with these words about Jesus. It says, he has explained him. Like, what, well, what is God like? Look at Jesus. He's the one who's full of grace and truth. He's the explanation of what God is like because he is God. Grace and truth are God's name. And Jesus is full of grace and truth because he's the explanation of God to man because he is the God-man. And he's the fullness of this in the fullness of time. These words, grace and truth, are paired together to communicate that Jesus is the God-man mediator who stood next to Moses. He's the one who deals with the death and sin problem by being the way, the truth, and the life, and by being the righteousness that his people need. Jesus' mediatorial work can work because of the singular name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So as name theology develops in Scripture, you think all the way out to Matthew 28 when Jesus commissions his disciples. He has this phrase that he told to them uh, to baptize them or to immerse other people in the name. Now notice it doesn't have an S on it. It's just name. There's just one name but he goes on to mention the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what you see, they all have the same name. They don't have a different name. You also think of, if that's kind of confusing to you, name equals nature. They have the exact same nature. There's not three different natures in the Godhead, but there's one name, one nature. And as name theology develops, from father to son. The son doesn't leave us as orphans, but he sends his spirit as the one who is one with the father. And when he ascended, he gave the gift of the Holy Spirit with whom he also is one. They share one name. And he is with us because he is one with the spirit. And the reason that his intercession can work is because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have the same name. Moses, as we have seen in this broader context, he, he, he got the how of mediation and atonement right, but he didn't know who the who was. So he, he offered himself and then the who showed up next to him to show him this is how it works and it's going to be me. It's going to be the Lord himself. 
Atonement is how it's done, but Moses isn't the guy. It's a man who atones, but it's also God. It's a God-man. It's the angel of the Lord. It's this pillar of the cloud. It's this pre-incarnate Christ at this point. When Moses said, I pray you show me your glory, what he was asking for was to see how God would be consistent with his character he, and how he's going to be consistent with his plan. He says, okay, well, if this is how it's going to work, help me to understand here. Like, I want to see you be who you say that you are. I don't get how it all connects at this point. And there are some things that aren't explained yet. Like what we learn here is that God does forgive and it is just. But the question is left unanswered. How can it be just though? Which the book of Leviticus answers. I'll just leave you hanging on that one. Moses was praying to know, God, how are you gonna carry out a just death sentence, but also keep your promise to justify the children of Abraham? How are you gonna be just in the justifier? Because I know that you are this and that you're going to do this, but show me how you're going to do this in keeping with your covenant. So Moses sees how atoning mediation will work by the mediator that's standing right next to him, interceding God's name. Yahweh calling upon Yahweh. Jesus calling upon the Father saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. It's these truths and reality about our God that remind us he isn't simply interested in us merely going through the motions of a worship service. He desires a dwelling with us kind of relationship. He doesn't want us just to put on a good performance and have a good time and have some events and whatnot. And as we've talked about, it's, it's possible to appear, appear near to God in a worship service and yet be very far from him. You could attend every worship service here at Foothill Christian Fellowship from now on until your dying day and go to hell in the end. Don't take for granted the privilege of being able to hear God's word right now. And don't take for granted a forgiveness that isn't just getting you out of some painful consequences of your sin, but a forgiveness that also transforms you from within into a child of God. You not only escape the consequences of your sin, but you get to know God and enjoy him forever also. Don't take for granted having a relationship with God. You have never deserved such a privilege for one second of your life, but you have it. But why do you have it? The only reason that you have this relationship is because of who God is, because he is full of grace and truth. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the great privilege that we could even come and pray to you, all because Jesus has interceded for us in explaining you, in fulfilling your will, your promises, and doing what no man ever could do 
except Jesus, the God-man himself. We pray today that in our hearts you would grow within us an increasing gratitude for the high privilege of knowing you and growing in you and walking in you, having this relationship with you. It is a fearful thing to know you and to have this privilege. We pray that you help us in fear and in love to stand and sing of this great relationship that we have by your grace alone. Amen. In John 1, 14 to 18, the word of God reads, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has been ahead of me for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. What wonderful truths to think upon this morning and to have cultivate in our hearts a greater love for our gracious Lord.